Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. I want to draw some blood. No! <laughs> no! No! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are run surpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are vast that I informed you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. We look at movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shurgy. With me is William Thrasher. Welcome to the fourth episode of this series, bitch. That's right. We're looking at A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. Came out in 1988. As the poster says, it's terror beyond your wildest dreams. Now, this was directed by Rennie Harlan. Screenplay by Brian Helgeland, Ken Wheat, and Jim Wheat. Based on a story by William Kotzwinkel and Brian Helgeland. And uh, music by Craig Safan. Cinematography, Stephen Fierberg. Uh, this... Uh, Came out in 88, and out of the original Elm Street films, uh, you know, not counting Freddy vs. Jason or the remake, uh, this is the highest grossing film in the series. Wow, really? Yeah. It, it is always surprising to see what the, the box office returns are on these movies, because, although I, I will say say this, my, my general impression of Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, this is has one of the worst stories of these movies, but visually, I think it might be the best. Yeah, you know, one of the people that do the effects is Screaming Mad George, who's done lots of movies, and... Uh, we haven't it, had it an occasion be... to talk about him since we covered uh, Bride of Reanimator back in the original sequel cast. And he's also, um, I think of him as the director of The Guyver 2, Um <laughs> But he's, yes, he's done plenty of things in his career, and Elm Street 3 and 4 were filmed almost back-to-back, because Elm Street 3 came out in 87, and this one came out in 88, So, and also the, the series Freddy's Nightmares that we did a few episodes on uh, premiered in 88, so this was like prime, uh, prime Freddy saturation. So, yeah, when, when did you first see this movie? Was it for the show, or have you seen this one on TV before? Well, I... I don't know when I first saw it because I I didn't remember anything in the film except the the cockroach death scene. I've seen I knew I had seen that before, so I must have seen this at some point in the past. But I, it must have been real late at night or real early in the morning because I had no memories of anything other than that one scene. You know, I had had seen some of this on on TV throughout the years, but I it was I think I mentioned this before, but to prep to watching Freddy vs. Jason in the theater, I saw the first four from each series because that's all the time I had, and uh, that's when I saw this one. And, and watching this one so soon after watching Elm Street three, I think is a good way to go because you it starts off with some characters from the first or from the third film, and in a way, this is sort of like a in the middle of a trilogy, as we'll discuss next week, you know, Elm Street 5 picks up on the end of Elm Street 4, and uh, although you have different, you know, dream master characters, so to speak, um, yeah, th- this one, the the director, Rennie Harlan, we haven't talked about him since our Die Hard 2 episode, I believe, and... He has an interesting and varied career. Doesn't he? Yeah, he's um, he's well, his, finished. His filmography is fascinating. That he's got Mine Hunters, he's got Cutthroat Island, the Sylvester Stallone classic Cliffhanger. That's right. He did do Cliffhanger. That's a pretty good movie. I saw that for the first time not that long ago. Um, yeah, and then Die Hard Two. You mentioned uh, he, um, you know, the Exorcist. I'd love to do in the show sometime, but they originally filmed a prequel with Paul Schrader. And then the studio didn't like it, so then they paid Rennie Harlan to film like a new version of it called Exorcist the Beginning, and eventually we got both versions released on video, which is kind of strange. Interesting. Um, and then more recently, he did, um, God, like Legend of Hercules, which was sort of a knockoff of the Dwayne Johnson one. They both come out the same year, 
But um, the most recent one you saw is on Netflix. I wouldn't mind watching it. It's Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville in Skip Trace. Yeah, Skip Trace, which has possibly one of the worst taglines I've ever seen. Watch your backup. I heard Skip Trace was originally supposed to be a um, like a Shane High Knight sort of movie. Or, or like Wilson another supposed to be in it, or another Rush Hour, maybe another Rush Hour, yeah. <laughs> and then and then things fell through. The Rush Hour would make more sense, wouldn't I it? I could believe no historical thing. So, but but then I've heard Rush Hour Four would actually be happening. So who knows? But anyway, Elm Street Four, the Dream Master. Um, I was watching some behind the scenes DVD things for this film, and Rennie Harlan said he felt uh, Freddy Krueger had such saturation at this point that he became the hero of the series, and uh, I think he certainly get. A lot of Robert England vamping it up. I mean, when when people say, "Oh, Freddy's just bad puns and stuff," I think they're thinking about this movie. Yeah, it's it's him. It's him being a horrified version or horrified version of Bugs Bunny throughout a lot of this film. Isn't it? I mean, it's it's just especially you get a scene that's sort of a Jaws pastiche. Um, but <laughs> One of I guess the best before. Scenes. Yeah, but before we get into the plot, or I just want to give a quick overview um, of the plot. So we we start off, you know, with, with some of the teenagers from the last film, and then stuff happens, and the uh, the power um, of the dream, you know, the main thing going against Freddy, uh, transferred from Kristen over to Alice, and she has some some new friends, and they all have nightmares, and they face off against Freddy Krueger. I mean, there's We'll get in more into the plot later, but that's basically what happened. Uh, also, given the mind that this was the, the highest grossing of the original Elm Street films, uh, this came out in 88. Where do you think this landed on the uh, domestic gross in the United States? Uh, let's say... Let's say number five. No, not you know, not quite that high, but number 19, hmm. which is very big for New Line Cinema, especially at the time. It made um, below it at number 20, The Land Before Time, the, really? I think Dom, Dom Bluth did that first one, is that right? Yes, yes he did. Yep. And then above it, at number 18, Bull Durham. And um, sort of more interesting, above it at num- above 18 at 17 is Disney's Oliver and Company. So like other stuff that year that made more money was like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, Willow, Crocodile Dundee 2, mm-hmm. A Fish Called Wanda. But making less money than Elm Street 4 were, was like the Steve Martin film, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, the the Schwarzenegger picture uh, Red Heat and um, the Chevy Chase movie Funny Farm. Mm. So a lot of different stuff came out in '88, and Elm Street Four got cracked the top twenty uh, domestically. So that's uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Also, it made more money than Young Guns. That's somewhat interesting. Um, which has a sequel. I haven't thought about that movie in years. So Elm, go on. Oh no! Just just that with like Young Guns. It's one of those movies that has a song from the soundtrack that has long outlived the film. And I think that song's in the second film. Is that right? The Bon Jovi. You know, maybe it thinking? is. Yeah. I'm a cowboy. Yeah. Um, Steel horse I ride. It should be mentioned. You know, one of the writers was Brian Helgeland, who um, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Who later became more famous uh, writing. Uh, and directing such movies as A Knight's Tale. And uh, he also worked on the um, the script for... Oh, the... I forgot that movie was even made. Jeez. The the Russell Crowe Robin Hood film. Hmm. And also the Tony Scott film Man on Fire. With Denzel Washington. So he sort of got to start doing Elm Street. And... Um, yeah, so what do you think the way about this one begins with some of the people from the first film, except we don't have Patricia Arquette coming back. Instead, it's Tuesday night playing the part of Kristen, who doesn't really look a lot like her. Yeah, it did take me a moment to realize it was supposed to be the same character, although once I realized that, I kind of I got into the groove pretty well. She does a, a decent enough job. Um, that's one thing I do like about these movies, uh Overall, they do attempt to have really strong connection, t- connective tissue to the previous films in the series. So they, I, they, I, they do. I yeah. like these characters, and, and it also fits the bill that, like, the ending of the previous film would seem to imply that a lot more <laughs> that that nobody really made it out alive, and in this one, we see them not making it out alive. 
And I love, yeah. I really love that resurrection of uh, Freddy scene that comes when uh, Kincaid is having the dream where he's in the junkyard uh, and Freddy's body reconstitutes itself. And it's very, very Hellraiser. It is. It looks like they're playing a lot of footage in reverse. Um, you also have a, a dog, but his dog comes into the dream and his dog pisses on Freddy Krueger's ashes. He pisses fire. <laughs> Onto yeah. where Freddy's body was buried, and and it's nice to go back to that junkyard. I think it's a very evocative location, and you get the cars kind of bouncing around and the lights, and it's kind of creepy. Uh, oh, it certainly looks Rennie, great. Yeah, and you mentioned Rennie Harley. You know, visually, this is a, a cool movie, and and he does a lot with the the shots to make it look more like a comic book, and maybe that's from his Finnish background. You have all those, you know, great. Um, you probably would have been familiar with things like heavy metal and, and I don't know, all those like artistic comic books over there. Well, as it but is known really, in, in Europe, Metal Hurland. Metal Hurland, right. And, uh, I mean, I'm also thinking of later you have a scene where, I think, I don't know if it's a dream or something, but um, Alice is, is walking around and stumbling and the camera is from up above and it starts circling in the opposite direction that she's walking yeah, you actually get some amazing uh, aerial shots uh, in mm-hmm. this film. I mean, the camera the camera work is incredibly inventive, uh, even even when you're not necessarily in a dream, which kind of adds to the the creeping madness. But something I want to talk about though with with Kincaid's uh, with Kincaid's death in the junkyard, they really do their best to make these nightmares seem strange and otherworldly. And I love that final shot of his nightmare when he's trapped in the maze of cars and the camera pulls back and we see that he's on an earth that is nothing but maze-like junkyards. It's an amazing matte painting. Yeah, it's a really nice reveal. And the way they pull out, they do it nice and slow so you can take your time with the music um what else you oh there's also... And there's also like a bit of continuity because he still he he still has to an extent his special skill from uh dream warriors where he in the dreams he's super strong and then you get joey right which is the kid that was sort of the mute in the first one yeah the, the, the one, one who didn't right? talk yep and yet um what freddie ends up Killing him isn't that what happens? Yeah, I mean, for, for, Freddy kills all these kids. Yeah, and we get we get something where um, Kristen has a friend, or what is it? Ah, can't think. Yeah, Kristen has a friend, Alice, and Alice talks to Kristen about how her family has always been really into dreams, and or she's had you know nine, nightmares her whole life, or and 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 stuff, and we eventually get. Kristen's uh, dream power, she gets killed, but her essence gets slapped into uh, Alice's body. Yeah, well, this, well, this ties into some something that kind of happens real quick and is tossed off at the end of the third film. The notion that Freddy is like consuming the souls of his victims, and from the beginning of this film, that's what he's doing. He's like he's eating the souls of the children and taking their power. But yeah, there's there's this power transfer into Alice, which becomes a running theme. As Alice's friends die, she absorbs their special dream powers, but also bits of their personality. Which which is actually one of the film's more visually interesting things. In her room, she has a vanity, but the mirror is covered up with photos of her and her friends. And as the film progresses, as her friends die, she takes down her photos until there's just her and her reflection. It's a really it's it's a really nice visual thing to carry out throughout the film. Hmm. Um, looking up interesting trivia, uh, writer original writer Brian Helgeland was only given uh, seven days to write the script for this film. Huh. And then New Line Cinema was upset when they saw the script he wrote after seven days, which isn't surprising. And uh, because there's a writer strike going on. They had to do it. There was a lot of improvisation because they couldn't have the writers on set to make changes. That that might explain a few things because there's one one thing about this: the Dream Master. Okay, so who is the Dream Master? Is it Freddy? Is it Alice? Is it God? Is it some other spiritual presence? Because this movie feels like it's trying to build an extended dream mythology around that exists outside of Freddy, but we only get these weird, contradictory snippets of it. Hmm. 
Like, you know, like the idea that there's like, the, the, like Alice right from the beginning knows that there's a dream master and you can pray to the dream master for protection in your dreams. But the dream master's dream or the prayer to the dream master, it is just that Catholic before you go to sleep prayer, but with dream master in place instead of God. But then there's also that highly specific psychology class they're taking, or maybe anthropology, it's very unclear, where the teacher is talking about dreams and talks about, and there are two gates, a gate of nightmares and a gate of good dreams, and there is a guardian of each gate. Which then, like, is forgotten until the end when, you know, the final showdown in the dream church, when Freddy's like, I've been guarding my gate for a long time, bitch. Yeah, it's an additional detail. I don't think that's needed. Also, the, the professor that tells that is uh, played by Bob Shea, who's the, you know, founder of New Line Cinema and executive produces most of their films. Uh, but not only that, he, he played a similar role of a teacher in the very first film. Well, that's true. I like to, you know, I like to think that it's the same teacher. <laughs> Why not? Sure. Um, what do you oh. think about the, the kids in this film? Because, you know, she has new friends. Overall, like they do... They really try to give the kids more distinct personalities. I like that they're not generic victim teens. I love the African-American girl who's a tech genius, uh, I think, that has the, has her whole asthma thing, which they don't play the asthma for a cheap laugh, which is pretty cool. And I, just, I like how smart and confident she is. I love the friend who they sort of set up to be really into, like... They set it up like she's really into, like, fashion. But no, she's not. She's into looking good. And part of that is she's super into fitness. And real fitness. She's not just doing aerobics. She's doing weightlifting. She's... The, the, the athleticness of her character is, is really nice. These, none of these characters feel generic. Even if these traits are just kind of overblown to make that impression. Right. And then we get the other one... Um... Oh, this this is the movie with the the swimsuit thing, or is that the next one on the diving uh, board? Uh, yeah, the di uh, yeah, the diving board. I believe is the next film. Okay, sorry, I saw these back to back. So did I. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess a bit confusing. Um, I think the the most famous out of the dream sequences with this is the uh, the the Roach Motel. Oh yeah, and this scene. And, is... and it, but it starts off with Debbie. You mentioned she works out a lot, and uh, you you get that a bit with. Uh, at, at first, you think, oh, it's going to be related to her working out. But early in the film, there's a throwaway line about her not liking cockroaches. Yeah, she doesn't like being... bugs. And there's even a scene where she's eating these like organic sweet potato chips, and she sees a bug crawling on one and freaks out, throws it to the ground, and stomps on it. So this is an mm. echo of that scene, and that's p part of her introduction as a character. So I like how tightly woven in that is. Yeah, and it it has her, you know, pumping iron, and her, um, like her her elbows start tearing away from her arms. Like it's, we, it's well, quite. Freddy... Freddie comes in to spot her and yeah, like pushes <laughs> down on the weights and snaps her arms. And it's just a wonderfully wet, gross, screaming Mad George effect. And we see her broken arms flopping around. There's exposed bone and tissue. But then like insect limbs start coming out of it. And yeah, she begins her slow metamorphosis, much like Gregor, into a cockroach. And he puts her in a, in a roach motel, and then he squishes well, the box. Well, he chases her into oh. a corridor that is a roach motel, and yeah, we see all yes. that gross stuff with the poison glue, and it rips her skin off, but under the skin is insect chitin. And then it keeps getting more and more surreal. There's other roaches in there with her. Uh -huh. And I love that bit where, like, we see that the roach motel she's in has been picked up, but we only see what the motel see or what she sees through the hole in the roach motel as Freddy carries it. That, that nice shot of Freddy looking in, and I just love that way he ends it, where you see Freddy crush the Roach Motel, and all that goo squirts out. It is screaming Mad George all the way, and it is probably the best death in this film. So you wanted to talk about screaming Mad George, it sounds like. What sort of stuff do you like out of his career? Because he's worked on quite a lot. So so he's a he's a Japanese visual artist who who specializes in the grotesque, but he's done he's done amazing special effects work. And that's kind of a signature of his of his stuff, is everything is very fleshy and very wet. because uh, we, we did we talked about a movie he did the effects work for in the old sequel cast Bride of Reanimator, and <clears throat> there's just there's just something there's there's something just amazing, amazingly 
sort of playfully nightmarish, I guess is the right way to say uh, uh, the thing to say about his his special effects work. Also, if uh, another movie that he did the special effects for, uh, Society, which was uh, I believe was an early Brian Usna film, uh, that movie is finally it used to be due to i think a rights dispute it was hard to get a hold of it's now available for streaming on several services it is well worth checking out i mean the the climax of the film is literally a screaming mad george orgy hmm. and of course the guyver the guyver would be something uh, something worth checking out too, since that has a sequel. And he's because he did the special effects for the first film and 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 straight up directed the second film. And I like how the first film has Mark Hamill on the poster, but he's not the titular Guyver. He's barely in it. Right. It's. Uh... Oh, but something else about Screaming Mad George. So beyond the cockroach scene. Because, like, every death scene is... I, I, like, looked through the credits. The death scenes are all credited to different special effects artists. So this really is a, a, mm. sort of a tribute to those scenes and the people who made them. And yet, there are Screaming Mad George undertones in most of the special effects set pieces to the point where I wonder if everyone was working on everyone else's sequences. Like, particularly the end... Uh, when we see all the bodies like inside Freddy and his skin becomes a membrane, that is screaming Mad George all the way. So I feel I feel right. like they had to have been. I feel like the effects artists had to have been like working on each other's material. Yeah, it could have been. I don't know, but that's a that's an interesting thought. More so than any of the other films, this is the movie that I want to see a very detailed making of about. Yeah, I don't, you know, the, um, like I was watching the Blu-ray, it, the clip, it's just really brief clips. There is a, a very long documentary called Never Sleep Again that kind of goes into the whole series in detail. Um, but it, it does have, uh, Wes Craven compliments Rennie Harlan on how the dreams look in this one. And that, that they're so creative and disturbing. Oh, and speaking of that, we talked about some of the aerial shots. There is a thing that they use in a lot of the school nightmare sequences where the tiles on the floor of the classrooms are arranged just so they create an illusion. They create a perspective illusion. Hmm. And whenever whenever we see a high-angle shot of these classrooms, it makes it look like all the students are standing over a void, and they keep using it both in the waking world and the dreaming world, and I really like the way that comes off. Oh, but can we talk about something? So we, we've talked about how, how in the earlier films, uh, the Nightmare movies did make a point where sometimes they leave you guessing as to whether or not a character is awake or in a dream. And this movie... That's right has one of the best the best uses of dream logic. When Alice and her boyfriend are trying to rescue their friend when they realize that Freddy's after her while she's working out, they do this thing where they keep reliving the moment where they get into the boyfriend's truck to drive to their mm. friend's house. To the point where... So my, my wife and I, we have been having some technical problems with our DVD player. The first time it happened, we thought our DVD player had busted on us again. <laughs> but I love that it's intentional that they keep redoing that scene and eventually the characters realize that they've been reliving that same scene as all part of a ploy to prevent them from saving their friend. Yeah, that's a good reveal. Uh, gee, you also... There's so much interesting well, can, things about... Can we talk about oh. the beach death uh, from earlier in the movie? Yeah, no, I was going to talk about that. It... Um, because the reason why it, it shows up is you have um, Kristen talking to Alice, and Alice says, oh, well, the way I avoid getting nightmares is just think of something nice. You know, think of a nice place you want to be, a safe spot you want to be, and uh, that way you'll have no nightmares. And uh, Kristen, you know, dreams and pretends she's on the beach in a bikini, um, laying down on, on a towel on the, on the nice beach, and you hear the ocean coming in. And uh, But yet, all is not what it seems. We have some bubbling in the water, and then we get we get these jaw this Jaws parody with Freddy's <laughs> glove sticking over the water like the shark fin. It's not just that, but like the the glove also gets into the goes off the coast into the sand, 
yet collides with a sand a really nice sandcastle which explodes and then there's there's Freddy standing uh standing in the crater and to the, and the so the movies are getting so goofy with Freddy at this point uh that I in, including oh including Freddy in drag uh which was pretty cool uh, I really wanted like I really wanted Freddy to be wearing like a a black and green Hawaiian shirt wearing a black and green lei with like a straw version of his hat. Like make make a full on tropical Freddy. Why not? You've already gone this far. You might as well go farther. Because he puts on sunglasses, right? Yeah, he does put on sunglasses. And he, he gives the camera a look. Uh, but yeah, the the one you mentioned um, with Freddy and drag, that's where the 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 man the boy that was um, a mute in the first film, Danny, right? Yep. It, he he had, he's looking at his poster of, of a girl, and he sees. Her, it's really, I guess he has a waterbed is what the implication is. Although I've never seen a waterbed that's translucent before. Well, it was the 80s. I mean, he, he he clearly has all these kind of rock star fantasies. It's a very rock star bed. His, yeah. oh, his death sequence, it's very fascinating that we get to see, like, he's got that naked woman swimming in the bed. And it's like this, right. neat, it's all very music video imagery. I almost wish it turned into a straight up music video. But yeah, then he gets trapped under the bed and, dr- and under the membrane of the waterbed and drowns, which, which, is physically impossible. I don't know if you've ever like seen a waterbed. It's impossible to get inside one like that, which is one of those things where it, it makes me wonder why p- the adults aren't asking questions like how are people dying in physically impossible ways. But the imagery of the blood floating into the water and then the mother seeing him there, I mean, it's pretty powerful stuff. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I've never had a waterbed. I've known people that have. I've heard stories of, you know, the cat goes and scratches the bed and water gets everywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, I've also heard of my, uh, I think my grandmother had one briefly and then returned it pretty quickly because she said... Uh, Having all the water slosh below you made you have to go to the bathroom all the time. Huh. Just just the noise of it was uh, too much. I mean, not to mention, I can't imagine that's good for your back. Um, like it, it's fun to lay on a waterbed in a in a showroom, but other than that, I don't. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. But it, it, in the eighties, you're right. That was the cool sort of status item to have. Was the waterbed. And and that you have um, Danny, he's listening to loud music with his headphones, and the way it it's sort of set up, it reminds me of the shots of Johnny Depp in the first film. Yeah, and they and they even use some classic uh, some classic uh, MTV promos are playing on his TV while this is going on. Back when, as Jay and Silent Bob, uh, or I guess Jay said, back when MTV used to show crazy puppets and cartoons and shit. Yeah, I mean, also, it, it might have been around the time of this film, but um, MTV would have guest uh, VJs, you know, video DJs, and um, Freddy Krueger did it one time. Oh, I bet. I want to find some footage of that. Yeah, there's also footage on YouTube of, um, there's a 1-900 number you could call for Freddy Krueger, where it was a 30-minute <laughs> long message, you know, to get you for two ninety nine a minute or whatever it was. Yeah, I believe I believe somebody has a recording of that that has been posted online. That might be worth listening to as well. But we wanted to talk about uh, Freddy and Drag. So there, there's a, one of the kids has a, has a sort of a nightmare panic attack, and they wake up in the hospital... And the nurse, and it took me a moment to figure this out because the mm-hmm. makeup is so good and the performance is so atypical of what we've seen. Uh, Robert Englund is playing the nurse. Uh, yep. And it's a really good performance. But then, like, he must have been having a dream because he, like, sort of shakes his head. And it's a, it's it's, a, it's not Robert Englund, it's a woman. But then when she turns her back, you know, she gets Freddy claw marks on her back. But Robert Englund is so good uh, in, in that brief that brief moment is the nurse. It really makes me wish that throughout all these films they played up Robert England inhabiting different roles in different parts of the dream. Because before this, all we really had was him as the bus driver in the second film. Right. And it it's yeah it it's strange they don't do more with that. You think in a dream, and uh, anything is possible and. Instead of him being, you know, Freddy, it's like, okay, well, there was no sort of mystery of who he is. But, yeah, I mean, both that and uh, the other thing with the, the girl in the waterbed before. It, yeah, it makes you wish they would have taken more, more chances, be a bit more... 
creative and um I mean you can tell Robert England is really sinking his teeth into having more of a, a on camera time in this film compared to the other ones. He's had more to do in this film than he has in any of the previous ones. Oh, what was that? You got cut off? Oh, I say he the, the Robert England has had more to do in this film than he has in any of the previous ones. I see. And um Gee, yeah, and, oh, there's also, remember, there's the stuff with, um, her, uh, Kristen's boyfriend is into the martial arts, oh. and that's very 80s as well, although he has the nunchucks, right? And oh, then, uh, yeah. Kristen is nervous, but then she ends up training herself in the martial arts as well, I guess, because that's effective against Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Well, I mean, she she gets like some really basic training, but yeah, I do I do like the again I like that each each of these kids is into something that a kid might be into at that age, and his his dedication to the to to karate and the martial arts is pretty cool to the point where like I like that he has that hachimaki that he wears, and but I love I love his death sequence where he's in a dojo. And it's it's right out of a kung fu movie, and he's fighting an invisible Freddy, and for quite a while, outright kicking Freddy's ass. I I, I did, for a moment, honestly believe that he was going to turn into the hero of this movie. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a pretty good moment, and um, but I have to say, even though that the kids are, you know, that they have good performances in here, um, you don't get that emotional connection between the characters that you got in Nightmare Three. With all the kids being at the, um, you know, sort of asylum. Well, there's nothing, like, beyond the kids being friends and trying to help each other out, there's really nothing, thematically, there's nothing to unify them. Yeah, so I don't think, you know, I don't think the script in this one is as good, and we mentioned the writer's strike, and that could have been something with it. But um, also, it's just, this is more cartoony and more broad and that both makes it, you know, this is a an easier, lighter watch. If I was going to show someone an Elm Street movie and they hadn't seen one before, I might pop on this one. Because hmm. I think it just goes down real easy. I mean, it does reference stuff in the other film, but it, the story doesn't matter as much in this as in some of the other ones. It's not as convoluted as, say, Elm Street 5, which we'll talk about next week. Um, and yet, it, it's very colorful and has a lot of some amusing puns. But yeah, you don't get anything as as memorable as in Nightmare Three, where um, the guy's uh, tendons from his wrist are being used to move him around like a puppet. Yeah, you know, there's it, nothing it, quite, quite like that. I guess when it comes down to it, the only the only nightmare scene that truly stands out as just a straight up nightmare is the Roach Motel scene. As much as I like the waterbed scene, it's it is more music video than it is nightmare. the the Roach The Roach scene is a nightmare from beginning to end and touches on so many kinds of horror. Why don't we talk about this? Have you um, any nightmares you can remember pretty vividly? Do you want to talk about a nightmare? Oh gosh, I remember well. I guess you know I've I've had I've had several well there's it's not it's not so much a nightmare as it's disturbing but there is a recurring dream that uh that I always have and sometimes it's an element in unrelated dreams where I, the dream itself is very normal but my teeth continue to grow and they eventually splinter and come out of my Oof. mouth in chunks and shards but there's yeah. always more teeth in my mouth so it just never stops it's, I guess more disturbing than frightening, but that's something that, that it keeps coming back to. I had a dream in middle school where I dreamt about going to my own funeral, and that was strange. Oh, I've, had, I've had several of those. I, I, yeah. uh, I, I, well, actually, one of the first dreams I can remember was, was me being buried, but from my corpse's perspective. So, like, I saw everything hmm. looking up, saw, saw, like, the walls of the grave rising around me as my body was being lowered. <laughs> People looking down at me, very, very disturbing. All the colors were washed out. I've I've certainly had uh, work-related dreams. But what's strange, you know, my day job, I, I do QA for web apps, and um, I've been stuck on a bug at work, and then I've dreamed the solution a few times, and that's pretty strange. I've had moments like that. And I'm sure you've had moments with your writing, Thrasher, where maybe you've been stuck on something and you dream a creative way to get out of a scene. Um, 
Has that ever happened to you? Or? Th- that no? has happened. Actually, yeah. one of the most striking times something like that happened, I, I, had, I had a dream where I was giving a eulogy uh, for, uh, for, my, for my grandfather, and I woke up and wrote the whole thing down, and then five years later, I needed, I, that was the eulogy that I gave at my grandfather's funeral. And um, did it did it work? I, I it worked. <laughs> I I guess so. I guess so, so. This is so. This is a weird. So I've got a I've got a pretty big family, um, mm-hmm. and of of my generation of the family, I'm I because of this, I'm always the one who speaks at funerals, and that's all my family knows me for is I'm the kid that gives eloquent eulogies. <laughs> How old were you the first time you were to do that? Oh god! Well, I think I was, uh, I think I was twenty four, twenty five. Hmm. But I've kind of, I've kind of been doing it ever since. When, when, when a, a relative dies of of all the all the the relatives my age, I'm kind of the representative who goes up and and and, and speaks at the funeral. It's a strange, it's a strange thing to be known for uh, within the family. <laughs> Yeah, I read a um, you know, speaking of, you know, dreaming and, and writing, I, I um a while ago I read a, a memoir by Terry Brooks who wrote the Shinera books. It's called Sometimes Magic Works: Lessons from a Writing Life. And um he talks about whenever he's stuck on on something when he's writing a book, he just immediately goes and takes a nap. And uh then he usually wakes up with some sort of a solution or something to point him in the right direction. And I feel like everything works that way. I wish I wish every industry you had the option to take a nap to because you can you can sleep your way to a solution. Hmm. Speaking about sleeping ways to a solution, how do you feel the ending of this film works? Because the ending of these Nightmare on Elm Street films get a bit messy, don't you think? They they try to often... think what well, can. Yeah, it's like it's, how, how do you kill Freddy, and how do you have an ending that it's not too cheesy that works? I mean, I, I think in Elm Street Three, the ending was pretty good with them running through the different doors, and you get the the cross cutting um, between her father and and the boyfriend, uh, you know, and the um, Freddy. But here, I, I think that the showdown is a is is a bit of a you know Alice versus Freddy and it's a kind of a letdown really. Well, the showdown in the church, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so so this is something. Th- this is something that's woven throughout this series. Is that regardless of what the film might try to tell you, aside from Freddy attacking you in your dreams and those dream those nightmares having real physical consequences for the children involved. There really are no rules for Freddy. So much of what he does and what he can do is inexplicable. Like, even in this film, they established in the previous film that if you buried Freddy on consecrated ground, then he's dead and in hell and can't come back. But then in this film, he comes back, and it's only ever addressed with Freddy saying, I found a way back. So we can only imagine that there's a whole movie between these two movies that explains how he undid what was done in the previous <laughs> film. So it, it do, but it also means there they have quote unquote defeated Freddy so many times that when we get to one of these climaxes, I go into it thinking, well, this isn't going to last. Either this movie's going to end with Freddy still being active, or the next movie's going to begin with Freddy back, and this will have no consequence. So the best you can do is make this emotionally satisfying, and they don't attempt to make it emotionally satisfying. I thought it was emotionally satisfying in the third film. Um, so, so yeah, so Alice, now that everyone she knows is dead, she's absorbed all their powers and abilities uh, and fashion statements and you know goes, goes off into the dreams to fight Freddy. Uh, and it's kind of neat seeing a showdown where she uses everyone's powers against Freddy, including uh, the, the nerdy girl's uh, bug-repelling sound generator, using it as an anti-Freddy laser. Uh, <laughs> and, like, I guess the thing, the only thing about the ending that really works for me uh, is, is Freddy's death, because the effects are so grotesque with Freddy ballooning up, and we see all the people including, I think, Liana Quigley is one of them, like, trapped under his skin trying to get out, and he eventually explodes, and all the souls fly out into the light. 
beyond that, this ending doesn't work for me. Nothing emotionally is at stake. I know that his defeat's not going to be permanent. It's just going to be a temporary respite, no matter how final they try to make it look. Because we know more movies are coming. Even when this came out, I would probably assume there's, there's another movie in the pipe because there's been so many sequels. But then we still have more references to the Dream Master in this weird dream mythology that they keep skimming. And it just it feels like it doesn't come from anywhere or go anywhere. No, and the more they explain it, the less interesting it is. And, and they and they try to have different reasons. I mean, I think uh, we'll get to this film later because we're just covering these first five films initially. But um, in one of the movies, they talk about dream demons um, being the cause of things. And yeah, I, it's better if you don't really explain it. Or I mean, you get a little bit of that exposition even in the first film where, oh, there's people that died in their sleep in Thailand or something. And I think that's all you really need. It, it, it's not always interesting to find out why the leopard got his spot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but but the effects with the the souls coming out of the body and stuff is, are, are pretty neat. And you see bodies like pushing up against the prosthetic of the chest. It's uh, it's so beautiful. It's beautifully grotesque. Yeah. I love every frame of it. Pretty good. I also kind of like that that shot of like the tunnel that the people are trapped through, when you really can't tell what is up and what is down. And what do you think of Lisa Wilcox's Alice, who becomes the heroine in this film? She's okay. I guess the only thing I don't like about her is that she's not as active as she probably should be, only because everything that makes her the heroine comes from everyone around her dying and her getting their powers. Like she's. She she's a very passive sort of chosen one figure because for whatever reason she's the one connected to dreams and she's the one that all this stuff happens around and she's the one that Freddy Freddy attacks people through her. Like Freddy is almost a meme in the in this this movie quite literally because he only attacks people she knows mm. after she's told them about Freddy. That's true and. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I think with um, with Kristen, she was more um, revealing. I, I don't know. She was more like tender and, and had some interesting character things going on. And, and Lisa, I think, is or not Lisa. That's the actress. Uh, Alice is just sort of um, eh, just sort of bland. I mean, I think her the actor that plays her father is kind of interesting. Oh, well, yeah, well, her family dynamic, they kind of go back to the strained family dynamic of the first film, where her, her father and mother uh, are divorced, but her father is his, her father is descending into alcoholism. And that that's yes. putting a strain on the family. That's right. So, um, okay. Well, I think that's, that's a good discussion of Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Um, would you recommend it? Sequel yes, sequel no? Yeah, I'm going to say sequel yes, if only for for the visuals of the Roach scene and for, for the strength of the characters. Story's not that good. The expanded Freddy mythology is not that good. But this movie is a visual treat. It is It has some of the most inventive direction of any of these films. It is, it is despite its flaws, I think it is still a worthy entry. Hmm. I, um... I'd say sequel, yes, I think, if, if only for the, the direction of the dream sequences. This might be as as good as some of the dream sequences get in the series. Um, although, I, I, you know, each movie has interesting bits. Uh, I, I don't think the characters are nearly as good as, as three, but it's um, it's it's a good follow-up. You know, if you're going to make things more Freddy-centric, this is a way to do it. And uh, you just get to see Robert England be more playful with the characters, which is fun. He's having fun, so that makes this movie more fun to watch. Very and, true. Um, yeah, so uh, let's let's do pitch a sequel then. Um, do you have something in mind? Well, I guess so. So this this is this is what I want to do. We've had two we've had two movies that that touch on the notion of of. Uh, you know, people taking control of their dreams, and while I do think that should be explored more, uh, I want to do a I want to do a movie uh, focused on the parents. I want to do a Nightmare on Elm Street mm. movie that where that has a prologue where we see all the parents uh, 
kill kill Freddy Krueger. And then we flash to the modern day. It'll, of course, take place after this fourth film. Uh, and it's going to be about the parents realizing that something supernatural is going on uh, with, with their kids. Because it's never commented on, but so many ways in which the children have died in these movies have been physically impossible. And so I'm going to make the breaking point the fact that a kid somehow teleported into his own waterbed. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the Elm Street parents, uh, you know, we might even make it the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, they now can no longer ignore, after all these deaths, they can no longer ignore that something is killing their children in dreams, but they don't know how to handle it because... Every time they talk to the affected kids, they still find it so hard to believe. So essentially, it's going to be more of a paranoid thriller where it's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie from the perspective of the parents. So we never see we never see the children's dreams. We only see what effects it has on them. So we will have we will have children discovered dead but in incredibly grotesque ways that raise questions about what they were experiencing in their dreams, whether it's a kid waking up covered in snake bites, a kid waking up crushed as if they had been run over by a car, uh, a, a kid wake, uh, waking up as if they had, waking up, a kid found dead with their skin desiccated as if they were submerged in, in stomach acid. Uh, and we'll make it about the parents' horror as they, as they, constantly fail to save their children's lives to the point where some of the parents start to get really paranoid and some of the parents and that's something uh that we didn't get a chance to talk about was was the uh the i think alice's mother drugging alice's drink to give her some some extra sleep the parents are going to start sneaking hypnosil which was a drug introduced in the uh in the third film, which provides deep dreamless sleep they're going to start sneaking it into their children's food uh, and that's going to lead to more more problems because eventually one parent is going to accidentally give their kid an overdose on hypnosil. That's going to kill the kid. And then the parent has to make it look like Freddy is responsible for the death. And from that point, it becomes about that adult spiraling down into madness because that adult suddenly can see Freddy and can see Freddy in their dreams because that adult, like Freddy, is now a child killer, even if it's by accident. And by the end of the movie, that adult has become Freddy's pawn uh, and has made a deal with Freddy that if it helps Freddy get... That Freddy won't attack this parent's remaining children if that parent can help Freddy get the other kids. Uh, and it's going to end echoing the beginning when a concerned group of parents with nothing to lose because their kids are dead trap this adult in a, in a building and set it on fire. I would do, um, you know, we get little, little hints in some of these films about the uh, Freddy's mother being the nun. And I would do sort of a prequel focusing on the nun. And maybe she would have some, some latent dream abilities. And it would end with the conception of Freddy, I think. Huh. And it would be dark, it would be... Um, okay. You know, I'm trying to think of the the ages of these characters. Uh, you would you you probably have. Well, she would have been in her twenties, I think, at the time, wouldn't she? Yes, yeah, she'd be in her twenties. I, I think you might even do some. Um, maybe she has some sort of like illicit romance going on, but then when the uh, when the the bastard son of a thousand maniacs, you know, when that sort of conception scene happens, like her her lover can't save her or something, maybe something tragic happens like that, and it would be sort of a quieter movie trying to, and it would be in a way try to do a spinoff t about doing a bunch of series of movies about the nun mother, and it would be called um, a nightmare on Mom's Street. <laughs> and it would be the title. I guess mine would be would be Nightmare on Elm Street Five. Uh, the uh, the nightmare never ends. There you go. And um, so I got a question for you, Thrasher. What you watching? Well, uh, I've gone on another uh, bad movie tear. Uh, so I have. I can now say that I have the dubious distinction of having seen both versions of Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny. Now, can you explain what that is? Okay, so Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny was an old uh, kitty matinee film that was filmed using resources from a 
a family amusement park uh, down in Florida. Uh, and it, it, it has, like, it, it's, it's a... Oh, please understand, this movie is bad. It is poorly shot, poorly written, poorly acted, but the general premise is that Santa was flying over Florida and it got too hot, so his reindeer abandoned him and his sleigh is sn- stuck in the sand on the Florida beach and he's trying to find a way out. And all these local kids show up to help him. They fail, so Santa tells them a story, which is a bad framing device for a whole other movie that exists in the movie. But then at the end, after telling the story... He hears this siren and a guy in a horrifying rabbit costume uh, riding a fire truck comes to help him. And this is the ice cream bunny who is apparently a mascot from the amusement park. And hmm. and I say there's two versions because <clears throat> the the version that was commonly available when Santa tells the story, it's the story of Thumbelina, which is a which uses assets from a stage show from a different amusement park. Um, but there is another version where instead it's the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, which was harder to find, but I think now is finally available. And it looks like Rift Tracks did both did commentary for both versions. Yes, they have they have an older Rift Tracks track for the Thumbelina version of the film, and then the Jack and the Beanstalk version of the film they did as one of their live shows, uh, which I think is now available on on a streaming service or two. So, which version do you think works better? Even I know you said the movie's bad, but is there is Thumbelina better than the Jack and the Beanstalk story? Okay, well, well, okay. So the the Jack and the Beanstalk version, technically speaking, I'll say is better because the Jack and the Beanstalk segment is a, a bit more competently made, and like you can actually hear what's the sound quality is better, and you can. <laughs> Like the the what few songs there are in that segment are are a bit more inspired. That being said, the Thumbelina version is probably the one you want to watch because it's the most horrific. It's it's the one where, especially during the Thumbelina section, it seems like every wrong decision was made. Okay, so now um, mind you, if you don't have a tolerance for time wasting awful kitty films, then you probably want to see one of the Rift Tracks versions. But I do challenge has, you in the audience: yeah. see, try to watch it without that commentary track. Get the raw Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny experience. Does this have any musical numbers in it? Yes, yeah, Santa has a song about being trapped in the uh, trapped in the the, the sand. Oh, and it's awful. Uh, and then there are musical numbers in both the Jack and the Beanstalk and the uh, Thumbelina version. The th- actually, the Thumbelina uh, one only has two musical numbers, one sung by a witch and one sung by uh, the fairy prince. And then there's like multiple musical numbers in the Jack and the Beanstalk version, including a great one from the giant. The giant's musical number, <laughs> the giant's singing voice sounds nothing like the giant's speaking voice. And I can't tell if it's dubbed. Like it, it, the lips sync up too well. It makes me wonder if this was the guy's real singing voice. Hmm. I saw a movie that was more recent. It popped up on HBO. Uh, I'm talking about Get Out, uh, written oh, and directed yeah. by Jordan Peele. And um, I quite liked it. I, I, I will say the marketing for it sort of focused on the comedy more. And I, I no, thought it was going to be. I will disagree with you. Really? Because I, th- I Every... thought you know the. Every ad I saw, every trailer I saw, made it clear that it was a horror movie. It's just that they kept having those awkward cuts where they would go, get out. And that's such a throwback. I can see why people might think that was meant to be comedic, but I don't think it was. I think they were intentionally Mm. doing a throwback to 70s uh, paranoid horror thrillers. Yeah, I mean, the the director, Jordan Peele, of Key and and Peele fame, uh, said he was inspired by things like the Stepford Wives, uh, which you can see as the movie goes on. I think it has some pretty good plot twists at the end. And um, it, it, it gets very intense. It's sort of uh, depressing, um, or very depressing. And, and you get um, good use of, of an old musical number I've never heard before about, um, I think it's about rabbits or something like that. But this old-timey song at the beginning that makes a return at the end. Um, I, I was surprised to see Stephen Root was in the picture in a small part. Yeah. I mean, it's got an amazing cast. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it's in the news again because the Golden Globes nominations came out and Get Out has been nominated in the comedy category despite the fact that it is not a comedy. Well, and so the Matt Damon film The Martian was nominated for comedy. I mean, well, this is this yeah. is the problem with those kind of a, a, a awards. They don't want innovative genre films to win the big awards, so they always shoehorn them into comedy, which is sadly the category they care the least about. And that's what ticks me off so much because by 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 putting movies like The Martian and especially Get Out into the comedy category, they are both trivializing those movies, but then they're also trivializing the actual comedies. Yeah, um, one thing I'm writing that would be cool to see is I guess the DVD has a lot of alternate endings. I've seen because... one of the alternate endings. Yeah, and... Um... Also, the the lead actor in this film, Daniel Kaluuya, was on an episode of Black Mirror. Oh, cool. Um, which I had seen, and he was pretty good in that as well. And, I mean, this movie made a lot of money. Off a budget of less than $5 million, made over $250 million. Oh, it did well, and it deserved so, it. So, Jordan Peele is already joking. Be sure to uh, look forward to my uh, critically panned second feature film <laughs> that in no way lives up to the uh, promise of the original. Um, so what that'll be, I don't know. I've heard rumors uh, Jordan Peele might be working on a, an, yet another reboot of the Twilight Zone. Um, well, we, we get one every 10 years it. or so, so it's, it, we're due Seems for like it. Because what, Forrest Whitaker did that one um, what, about 10 years ago or so. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's it's uh, It's possible. I think it's... But no, it's good. It's it's moody. I think the the acting is is better than I expected for this sort of a movie, and um, the the reveals we get of, of the different family members are are well done. I, I would highly recommend get out and try and not um, read that much about it before you watch it. I okay. I will. So this is something worth talking about. So I had the movie. When, okay, when the movie came out, money was really tight, and I didn't think I was going to see it in theaters, so I ended up, but I was really curious about it, I ended up reading a very spoiler-intensive review. It did mm. not hurt my experience with the movie at all. This What I've learned okay. is, if the work is any good, no amount of spoiling will hurt it. Spoiling only hurts mediocre work, and it only hurts work that is far too dependent on a third-act twist. I mean, I, I will say about spoilers that the people complaining about them on the internet is pretty silly because the internet is is like the land of spoilers, right? And <laughs> True. And, and, and you can... I, I saw people piss and moan about um, the movie Justice League just came out and, and some movie websites like spoiled the end credit scenes. And they're like, oh, thanks a lot, website, for doing that. And it's like, well, what do you expect them to do? They're trying to make a living like anyone else. You could have not um, read the article. <laughs> Well, it was the headline. The headline is what spoiled it. But, I mean, still, like, if you're going to a movie website, do you think you might see spoilers? Yeah, probably. Yeah, we we may or may not talk about the uh, the Justice League one day. I've been burned enough times that that I probably... I'm I'm probably going to give this one a pass. Although, that being said, the general... The, the the reviews that I'm seeing basically come out to well this isn't terrible this is very not terrible and that's that's a dubious distinction but I don't want not terrible I want at least good I do wonder if we're going to see an extended cut of it because the Justice League runs about two hours which I'm is, sure um, we are I'm sure that there will be a <laughs> pretty DVD short. version with an extended cut yeah, I heard there's an extended, the ultimate cut or whatever of um, Batman v Superman is over three hours long. If you know how excruciating the theatrical cut was, I can't imagine. Um, all right, well, good. Uh, I think we've had a good discussion here of Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Absolutely. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. We wrap up our look at the initial Elm Street films with the Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. As the poster says, Freddy delivers. Or does he? <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. Uh, after that, if you're keeping score, um, we're going to look at the first three live-action Transformers movies starring Shia LaBeouf. They make and, a kind um, of trilogy. Yeah, yeah. You know, they uh, they do drop that character with, with Wiki or whatever, like a hot potato in the later films. But 
yes, he, he did the first three, and so it's a, that'll be a fun thing to talk about. And, um, yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And to follow the show at SequelCast2, uh, leave a review on the podcast app on your phone or whatever way you have to listen to it. And um, for SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying, Looks like you made the final cut, bitch. Theme song to Sequel Cast 2 was written and performed by Mark with a C. Listen to his music at markwithac.com. Follow Sequel Cast 2 on Twitter at SequelCast2. Listen to the show streaming on Stitcher. And don't forget to support the show on Patreon for as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash sequelcast2. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 